0: I was an elite gymnast. I was on Team USA for about seven years. I was the national champion in 1986. You know, I was training eight, 10 hours a day at 12 and 13 years old. But I started at Levi's in 1999, not my first corporate job, but certainly most significant. And I was super excited to be there. I loved the brand. If we don't stand up for what makes American business great, you cannot have world-class redefining innovation if you don't have open debate and dissent within companies, if you don't have true collaboration. It's accepting that we live in a world of lies which is completely destabilizing and who knows you know what path that leads us down. You have to show up and reject lies in your own way in your own life every day, however small.
1: Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou, and boy, do we have an exciting guest lined up for you today. Today's guest is someone who has been a leader, an innovator, a trailblazer in the world of business, and she's a woman of principle. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only. The legendary Jen Say. Welcome to the show, Jen.
0: It's quite an intro. Thanks for having me. I'm not sure I fit that bill, but thank you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You absolutely do. You're a very inspiring human being, and it's an honor to have you here on the show. So thanks for being here. The folks who listen to the show tend to be entrepreneurs. These are the men and women who have the courage to dream and go out there and try to make their dreams come true. And The reason they listen to the show is not because of me, because I'm here every week. They listen because of you. They want to learn from you. They want to be inspired by you. And you've got quite an incredible story. So tell us your backstory. How'd you get to be the great Jensei? I
0: feel very uncomfortable with the moniker. Um, Let's see. I'll start at the beginning, but I'll try not to make it... um... Too too long. I'm old, so I have a lot of years under my belt. But I am—I um, had a pretty unusual childhood. I was an elite gymnast. I was on Team USA for about seven years. Um, I was the national champion in 1986. So you know, when I say unusual, you know, I was training eight, ten hours a day. Um, you know, at 12 and 13 years old, I kind of gave up all that normal stuff that kids do um including just going to school full-time you know i went to school uh, only half a day throughout middle school and high school so that i could fit in all of that training um missed key milestones you know that other kids kind of have that are normal anyway that was all it all seemed worth it to me um until it wow. didn't uh, the sport as one probably is aware at this point because of stories that have been in the news in the last five years, uh, Dr. Larry Nasser in particular, I say doctor in quotes, he was the doctor for Team USA Gymnastics, and he's now in prison for life for sexually assaulting over 500 um, young girls and women. I think he's only actually in prison for eight of them, but I think we know about over 500. Um So, you know, the sport was incredibly abusive, not just that it's not just that sexual abuse was rampant, it's that physical and emotional abuse were really kind of used to beat the young athletes down. Um, And I continued to suffer the repercussions of that for many, many years after I left the sport. I'll put that on hold for now and I'll come back to it in a second. Um, Eventually, though, I went to, uh, you know, I retired from the sport kind of damaged and ashamed, strangely, because of, you know, how they made me feel about myself because of all of the um, emotional and physical abuse. And despite the fact that i had had tremendous success as a national champion, etc., I just felt like a complete failure. I took that off with me into young adulthood. Not a good way to start, but I, I went off to college and then ultimately um, started working in the corporate world. Not something I'd wanted to do, but I was very proud and, uh, you know, wanted to support myself. Um, didn't want to ask anyone for, for any help. Um, but I started at Levi's in 1999, not my first, my first corporate job, but certainly most significant. And I was super excited to be there. I loved the brand. I'd worn it since I was very young. Um, I had in fact taken 10 pairs of 501s to trade with me when I went to Moscow, uh, in 19, what year was it? 86 for the very first Goodwill Games, traded them with Russian gymnasts. That was kind of a Peak moment for me. Uh, But I started there in 1999. I worked my way all the way up the ladder to chief marketing officer for eight years and then ultimately brand president. So I, and I was next in line for CEO. I would have been the first woman, but I was very outspoken about uh, closed public schools in my city, San Francisco, my former city, during COVID from the very beginning. And after a two year battle internally, I was shown the door, essentially. Um, And rather than accept their framing of my exit and accept their hush money and, you know, all of that to stay quiet, I quit in a pretty public way so that I could talk about the sort of bullying and censorship. And, you know, I would argue viewpoint discrimination that were happening inside the company. To follow up on the gymnastics piece, just very quickly, though, in 2008, I wrote my first book called Chalked Up, which was a memoir about my time in the sport. And it was the first first person account of the abuse in the sport. And it was not well received by the community. I was not supposed to say the things I did. Um, So it was really my first um, kind of warm up at getting canceled and dragged across the internet. It took about 10 years for everybody to come around and pretend they'd always stood with me, um, you know, with the conviction of Larry Nasser. but they hadn't. That's okay. Someone has to go first. Um, so those are the, that's sort of my backstory. I think that hits all the high points. Anyway, that was my first experience of being, I guess, canceled. So I got a little bit used to it.
1: Um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not often left speechless. You know, I speak for a living, but that left me speechless. You know, we're living in a time where uh, not a lot of men are stepping up into these fights the way they should be. Um, And I don't blame a lot of these men because they haven't taught how to be men. They've been taught how to be feminized little Nancy boys uh and um, it's a fact but it's taken strong women like you to step up but you know strong women like you still need their warriors i mean queen elizabeth the first had sir walter raleigh out there uh taking the fight to her enemies and that's what needs to happen now i do another podcast for men called the sovereign man podcast. And I, and I, and I run a men's organization and we're all about uplifting men and manhood. And one of the things that we tell the men in that group is, Hey, look, we're here to help you be a better man, but being a better man, here's the secret. You got to do work. You got to look at where you're not being much of a man (laughs) and you got to do the work to be a man. And and one of the things you got to do is stand up you know, you, you were on my uh, friend and uh, co-author of my latest book, Wayne Allen Roots TV Program. And what's great about Wayne is he'll jump forward and he'll say what needs to be said. And he's been canceled a half a dozen times at least, kicked off of uh, conservative news outlets for speaking the truth powerfully. I mean, it just it makes me laugh.
0: <laughs> yeah. But
1: what you did was right. You stood up for you for kids, and so I commend you for doing that. And I commend okay. you for going out there and telling your story. And there's a lot of pushback right now that's happening against uh, groupthink and against people who have taken over iconic American brands. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm wearing a pair of Levi's right now. I still love the jeans. <laughs>
0: I do too. I just was having a conversation with someone last night. First of all, I worked there 23 years. So if you don't think I have hundreds of pairs, you're, I mean, I have, my closet is, is full. I, I still think they're the best jeans. I, to me, it feels weird to wear, you know, any other kind. So you have no complaint from me. I think they're the best jeans. So.
1: Yeah, they are. But uh, the people that have, it seems like the, people have taken over the organization. Many of them don't have the courage of their convictions. I mean, you look at the story of Levi Strauss and how uh, originally he made his dungarees, as I guess they called them back then, for uh, the uh, the miners Cover. in uh, California. I, I think he'd be rolling in his grave if he saw what these folks are doing today.
0: Yeah, I mean, the story of Levi's is a story of rugged individualism. Um, it, it's a, it sort of, I think, at its best represents the best of the American promise, you know, this sort of heroic, rugged individual, but also this, this notion of inclusion. Everyone wears Levi's. It's really sort yeah. of remarkable. Everyone from, you know, cowboys to minivan moms to you know, hip hop artists and everyone in between. And so it really is this sort of story of we're connected through our difference in a sense. We all wear Levi's, we all wear them our own way. Um, We don't at Levi's or we, I should not say we, they don't prescribe how they are to be worn. It's not about a particular look, it's about you and who you are as an individual. And that's what I always loved about the brand, which is very different than other kind of fashion and apparel brands. And I think that is why sort of this thread of rugged individualism that has always run through the brand and I think embodied by Levi Strauss himself, right? This dry goods merchant from Bavaria, Germany today, came to California to make his fortune and he made these very strong pants for miners. Their gold was falling falling out of their pockets. They called them coveralls at the time. Um... And, you know, patented the the rivet and this certain kind of fabric that made the, the pants stronger. And it really is this sort of American ingenuity and, you know, innovation and rugged individualism and optimism, all these things It represents the promise of America. And that's what I loved about it. And I think it's sort of why my story has resonated, because it's such a violation of those principles. Really? Um, it's real trespass. And it is, I think... A function of the cowardice in corporate leadership today. It, it extends beyond corporate leadership, but that's the world I spent the last thirty years of my life in. Um, you know, clearly in the world of sport, we see it as well. You know, I experienced it when I stood up to defend children within within gymnastics and the Olympic movement. But I think there is a real failure. Of um, courageous corporate leadership. And while I hate to lay it at the feet of men, I think 98% of CEOs of American companies are men. So, you know, you guys own it. <laughs> yeah, That's totally problematic do. in and of itself, given that 50% of the population are, are women. But given that fact, um, it is a failure on the part of men. And I think it's really um, concerning as far as american business leadership on on the world stage and if we don't kind of stand up for what makes american business great you know innovation um you cannot have world-class redefining innovation if you don't have open debate and dissent within companies if you don't have true collaboration and right now that is not what is being um furthered you have uh, distraction. Folks are not focused on making incredible product that brings value that brings value to people's lives. Inspiring marketing that brings people together and financial discipline. Those are the things that make American businesses great and businesses around the world. Instead, they're focused on goodness knows what. <laughs> you know, uh, virtue signaling. Marketing. They're focused
1: on virtue Pol- signaling. Yeah.
0: That, that's correct. Polarizing marketing, virtue signaling. They're not focused on the consumer and what will bring value to their lives. And we see some really prominent businesses suffering for it. And I don't really see others taking the cue from those mistakes. I do think it will happen because at the end of the day, no matter what these business leaders would have you believe about how virtuous they are and, you know, they love the kind of praise from that, "Quote unquote," selfless virtue that they they like to project. What they really care about, and they always will, is the bottom line, and that is actually their fiduciary responsibility. And they are violating that at the moment. And nobody wants to be Bud Light right now, so they will come around. At the end of the day, um, the responsibility, and frankly, the the desire to make money themselves that will ultimately trump all of this. Um, but it will take some time. Big businesses are hard to turn. They've been driving these points home for many, many years, and it's yeah. going to take a long time, I think, to turn the ship. But there is a real failure in courageous corporate leadership. I've seen, you know, a couple examples of leaders I would cite that have been more cr- courageous. It, it, you know, one I would cite is. Um, Ted Sarandos, the the head of Netflix, who yeah. amidst lots of pushback in the summer of 2021 around Dave Chappelle's special "The Closer," which was billed as sort of anti-trans by uh, by ideologues and activists, he refused to take it down. And in a very simple statement to his employees, he said, "We're a broad reach platform. We we are going to show a lot of stuff, and you might like some of it. You might not, but." We're for a lot of different kind of people. If you don't like it, don't work here. And that was the end of that. And, you know, I think my situation is sort of similar. Like there's no reason the CEO of Levi's, when whatever small number of employees were complaining about me while I continued to do my job well, there's no reason he couldn't have stood up and said, look, I know some of you disagree with the things Jen is saying outside of work. That's too bad. She has a right to use her voice. You have a right to use yours. Let's get back to business. That's all that needed to be said. But he it cowed is. to the, the mob.
1: Yeah. Because he, 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 he's a ballless wonder, you know, he's a ballless wonder. I, it's <laughs> uh, uh, a fact.
0: Um, I think to your earlier point, um, when it came to COVID and our children in particular, I do think women Um, were more the leaders in the movement because I think I am what's that? Yeah. I think women were the ones. Yeah. We (laughs) were the ones. Well, women generally were the ones left holding the bag. They were the ones who left the workforce in droves who had to be home with children Managing their education, they've not yet returned to the workforce. Many of them, the you know, employment gap is widened between men and women. Um, they're the ones that, even when both parents work full time, take the majority of the you know, child care responsibilities, and so that just became crushing during COVID. So they were seeing it firsthand. They were seeing the way that their children were suffering firsthand, and they couldn't abide. And so the women were much more vocal. But I, I think it's interesting because women also suffer the slings and arrows of the social ostracizing, I think more intensely than men. So in many ways, it was more difficult for us, but we did it anyway.
1: So, this is a fascinating conversation. It's going in a bit of a different direction than I imagined it would, and I'm fine with it. Um, I'll bring it back to the business direction a little bit later, because I really am enjoying this. but. I think what happened during um, the lockdowns is many parents started to see what was happening in schools to their kids. They started to see the ideological indoctrination and they were horrified by it. And that's why um, so many parents have become involved in the United States, but even now in Canada, in uh, um, getting on school boards. And getting some of the ideologues out. I mean, in Canada yesterday, across every major Canadian city, there was a million Canadian parents that were pushing back against the ideological sexual indoctrination of little kids. You you know, Bill Moore, you know, I'm a I'm a libertarian right-wing conservative man. I think the great Ronald Reagan is a squishy moderate. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, okay?
0: <laughs> yeah, we probably so, come from different sides of the fence on those Yeah, paths. yeah.
1: But just <laughs> so you understand, I am as hardcore right-wing as they come in these certain issues. But libertarian from a very libertarian perspective. I like a Tucker Carlson's uh thinking is very similar to my own. Uh but um what what uh what what was happening was uh, a lot of parents uh, just were like, "Hey, no more. We we don't want this for our kids." And I've always been one to say, "Live and let live." Growing up, uh, one of my two best friends came out to me as gay, and uh, I knew he was gay yeah. well before he came out to me. And he, I'm from Iran. You know, I don't know how much you know about Iran, but n- not do. exactly I known for gays,
0: yeah. right? <laughs> no, not exactly <laughs> not like a,
1: great- a bathroom for that. So.
0: Yeah, he not tolerance being, for women or gays, right? Or,
1: or a lot of things. But yeah um, my buddy said, I'm he said, I I gotta tell you this. And I go, Yeah, I know. He says, You do. He says, I thought you were gonna hate me. And I said, No, man, we're 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 pals, we're brothers. I said, You know I'm not. He goes, Yeah, I know you're not. And I go, then we're good. We're no problems here from my point of view. Right. I'll respect you, you respect me. Sounds right. This guy killed himself over being gay. He, oh at some God. point could not handle so it anymore. Sorry. Thank you, but you know, it, it's. I had no idea he was in that kind of mindset. I called him one day. He wasn't answering his cell phone. And oh I, my goodness! He, three days in a row, he always called me back, and I'm like, okay, what's going on? And then I, I, I called his. <laughs> so this was the interesting part. He was dating men and women at the time. So I called the, the woman he was dating at the time, and um, I said, hey where's Damon? She says, you didn't know? I go, no. She says, he killed himself. I'm like, what? Oh my God. She said, here's the note. So she read me the note and I'm like, oh Jesus. And live and let live's important. Helping somebody who's dealing with understanding their own identity and giving them all the space in the room to do that's important. But going to impressionable little kids and telling them you're this, you're that, And and, and trying to make them see things when they have no clue what the world is all about, they have no clue what their sexuality is all about, is insane. Little kids should not be talked to in that fashion. And I think it's a good thing when parents stand up for their little children. You know, Uh, there are two people that are good friends of mine. Uh, one's, uh, daughter transitioned into, uh, being a boy and one's uh, brother transitioned into being, uh, a, a, a woman. And it was, um, it was a tough decision for both of them. They went through a lot of, uh, uh, support. They went and they saw psychiatrists, all of that stuff. This was before all the craziness took place. This is like 15 years ago that all this happened. Right. And Nobody had any issues with these folks. Everybody loved right. them. Everybody supported them. What's happening today is absolute insanity. It's it's like there is this, an agenda designed to weaken the family, mm-hmm. to not to 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 make women feel unsafe in certain spaces. Because what they're allowing folks to do is they're they're allowing really messed up, damaged men to say, "I'm going to pretend I'm a woman. I'm going to go into sports. I'm going to physically beat the crap out of women." or I'm a I'm a man who's a rapist. I'm going to go into women's prison now and pretend I'm a woman, and I'm going to rape the women prisoners in there. What the hell is that all about? That's craziness. I, yeah,
0: I think, and I have um, friends. I guess they're former. They don't like my COVID views. Um, friends who have children that transition, and it was quite a while ago, like you're saying. And I think no one really, you know, had any issue. I think the difference now, um is we're being told that we have to sort of submit to a lie that there is no such thing as biology that that is just sort of fundamentally unfounded you are who you say you are that wasn't true 10 years ago or even 15 years ago not broadly maybe sort of deep within psych profession but not not broadly we weren't told and in fact when you when you talk with Some folks who are older, you know, more in our maybe age cohort, um, they would say they're transsexuals, not transgender. They have a Disorder that you know they are more comfortable living, presenting as as the 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 biological as, as the sex that is opposite of the one they were born with. They don't believe they believe that there is such a thing as biology and and, mm-hmm. and sex and gender. Um, they they don't believe they actually are the other sex. They just feel more comfortable living and presenting that way. I think everybody exactly. was was absolutely fine with that. But this notion that you have to agree that there is no such thing as biology. And therefore, if you say you're a woman, you are a woman, you must be allowed in women's spaces, you must be allowed to compete in women's sports, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is where I think people become very uncomfortable because we're being told we need to kind of submit to a lie. And that's very destabilizing. And I think to bring it back to some of my, you know, earlier advocacy, you know, if I just look at gymnastics, the lie I was forced to carry was that you know, abuse was tough coaching. It wasn't tough coaching. It was abuse and it's a bright line. And I refused to carry it at a certain point. It took me 20 years until I was 40 years old to say, you know what? No, I'm not accepting your bullshit lie anymore. You are abusing children. Um, I think that's the thing that kind of, that's the thing when I'm confronted with, especially as it pertains to children, that I just sort of had a hard line. And when I, when I look about covid and the, the closed schools from the very beginning it was known that this was um a disease that impacts older people older not exclusively people. but almost exclusively almost and that children were yeah. yeah almost exclusively i mean i think the average or the median age of death is 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 above the average life expectancy in america yeah, so you know clearly, anyone. yeah and that was true from the very beginning from the princess cruise line from all of it and so this The lie that underpinned uh, school closures, which was everyone is at equal risk, not only is everyone at equal risk, but children are super spreaders, children are resilient, they will not be harmed by these closed schools. There are so many lies that we were forced to accept, Um, and obviously none of that was true, children have been harmed, the educational setbacks Um, the emotional, psychosocial development, all of it, we're going to continue to feel the repercussions for a generation. And I just was like, I'm not accepting this lie. If we accept lies and the policies that come from those lies, it just tremendous harm is ultimately done. And I think these are three examples of that. And I, for me, what's at the core of all three of these things is there is a lie at the center of it, and you cannot accept it. And you should not be shamed into accepting it,
1: no matter what they
0: call you. So, um, you know, I was called a, a grifter and a liar in gymnastics. I was called a, 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 I've been called a grifter and the sort of COVID dissenting as well. But I've also been called a racist. Like, it's, it's crazy. There's a, a racist. It, it, was, it was harmful to the, the poorest children to keep the public schools yeah. closed. Um, and I'm not equating black people with being poor, but our public schools, at least in my city of San Francisco, were disproportionately populated. By black children and brown children, they were the ones that were harmed. It was the opposite of what these people were saying, um, yeah. and so I just guess I won't accept a lie. And if that's courage, it's not meant to be. It's just sort of this like cognitive dissonance. I won't like, I, and I'll endure the repercussions. I can't further a lie to fit in with the group. I just I won't do it.
1: A- Amen, sister. Amen. Well said. Bravo. And. Um one of my favorite authors is Ayn Rand. And I don't know if you've read her books, Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead and Anthem. And Anthem is one of my absolute favorite books. It's a really short novel that she wrote. And it was about a um, dystopian Marxist society where there is no individual identity. Everyone calls themselves we. And you're mm-hmm. given your, um, I read that your spouse you're given your, your job. Um, and it's based on what the state decides. And this is the story of, um, a pair of lovers who push back against that. And if you have an opportunity, if you haven't read that book, I highly recommend it. It's a beautiful book. It'll touch your soul. And We are living in an anthem world right now where people are telling you down is up, up is down. It's a 1984 world as well, George Orwell's famous book. And those of us that are unwilling to put up with that are being vilified and uh, shamed and ostracized. But what they don't understand is that we have the courage to stand up for what is right, and we wear their, their... Disdain as a badge of honor.
0: Yeah, we welcome their hatred, right? Um, it's true. And it, at first, it was very upsetting to me and disturbing to me, you know, and I would try to kind of defend myself against some of the name calling, and I don't bother anymore because it's so ludicrous. And I, I do firmly believe that truth outs in the end. I think ultimately it's unavoidable um, that the truth makes itself known. It can take a very long time. I think as I was. Sh- you know dissenting around school closures in particular but all the restrictions to children i kept thinking like the truth is going to come it's going to come soon enough and everybody's going to see it and and obviously you know i was not able to kind of beat the buzzer on this one um, but i still believe it it will and in fact in some ways you know i'll be honest when it comes to 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 covid and the restrictions There is acknowledgement that children were harmed. Like there's widespread, at least in America, there is no accountability, which is what I am striving for. And I think there is a willingness to do it all again, even though there's acknowledgement. There's sort of this like tepid acknowledgement that is, yeah, it was really harmful, but we had to do it anyway. That's not far enough for me. It needs to be, it was very harmful. It was ineffective. We did not have to do it. And these people did it. These were policy decisions that were wrongheaded and we can never do them again. So I will keep pushing until we get there. But the truth Amen. of it being harmful is known at this point. So that's progress. <laughs> I will well, take that. In Canada, where I live.
1: It's the same. And there, the, the media, the, the lapdogs of the powers that be are making noises about, Oh, this strain of COVID's here. And well, there's some, organizations that are pushing masking and this and that. But I'm telling you, there are folks that back then went along with this, who are now publicly coming out and saying, nope, not again. And that's good. The governments here are gingerly tiptoeing around this because Canadians are polite. And, you know, we follow the rules, not me so much, but you know, a lot of other folks do, but if we think you're being unfair or you've lied to us, whoa! I don't know watch if you out. ever watch Canadians play hockey, but they're not as nice no, as I, they seem. I
0: could, they're not I could as imagine. nice as they
1: seem. Well,
0: anyone you know? who plays hockey, I think you got to be pretty aggressive. Yeah, I think yeah. one of the most disturbing things of the last few years, you know, which you just touched upon, and and, and perhaps was kind of present all along, but I think it's really been cemented in the last few years is this idea that there's really no daylight between um, the mainstream media and governmental policies, particularly democratic in the United States party policy. There's just no daylight. They are working in lockstep. Um, And one of the reasons, you know, I come from a different side of things than you. I'd been a a Democrat my whole life, a a left of left of center Democrat. I don't really fit anywhere anymore, Um, but at least in part what, what I liked about the, the Democrats <laughs> was I saw it as the, I saw them as the party that were sort of there to uplift children. Um, and I saw them as the party that were for free speech, which there was truth to, I think, for many, many years. I mean, the ACLU fought for all points of view to be heard. They fought for the Nazis' right to march in Skokie. It's a cliche at this point, but it's true. Um And they sort of positioned themselves as the sort of party that would hold corporate entities to account, you know, in defense of the little guy. And now I would say they use their power and influence to crush the little guy and to line up with corporate entities, whether it's social media company, mainstream media company, or pharma. And so I don't, well, they also sort of were the anti-war party, and now I don't see them as such anymore. So, you know, many of the reasons I was a Democrat just aren't, it, I, that's not what the party is anymore. I mean, it is the party of the elite in, in the United States, and the demographics show it. You know, it is the party of the college educated, the party that thinks they know better. They disdain the working class. Um, and so, but that sort of alignment between social media, mainstream media, and government is grotesque. Feeble. It's evil. it's evil, and so I feel there's a lot of folks to be disappointed with and angry with during COVID, and I certainly am angry with the governor of California, who's a raging hypocrite, who did whatever he wanted while forcing you know the plebs to stay home and mask their two-year-olds. Um, but it is... The, I, I never really thought that our government leaders weren't hypocritical, so like I'm a little less disappointed there. I did think that the reason people were journalists and went into uh, journalism and media was to hold power to account, not to just cozy up to it. I thought that, maybe it was naive, but it is <laughs> clear that is not the case um, in today's world. And so I'm most disappointed with the journalists, so-called journalists who did not hold government leaders to account, public health um, bureaucracies to account. They didn't do anything, they, they published, Big Pharma press releases as news stories, and still do.
1: So, Jen, um, I studied international politics and business in university. I got my undergraduate at the University of Toronto, and I got my masters at Georgetown University. And for fun, I read history books. Okay, so. I'm, I'm reading Winston Groom's uh, series um, on the Patriots, the, uh, the generals of World War II, and that sort of thing. So th- just so you understand who I am. I've read over 4,000 books. I'm 56 years old. You know, I've written 10 books. I've read over 4,000. This is my thing, right? And a few years ago, I was introduced to the work of a ex-CIA officer named Kent Clisby, C-L-I-Z-B-E. He wrote a book called Willing Accomplices. I bought it, put it on my shelf for six months, didn't touch it. I I do that a lot, right? Because I I read a lot of books I buy a lot of books. Buy faster than I read, even though I read over 100 books a year. It's crazy. But um, one day, it was like God was telling me, pick this book up. So I picked it up and I read it. And he's not what you'd call a... um, a brilliant writer. But the content of what he was talking about blew me away. And the thesis of the book is that there has been a hundred-year um, PSYOP campaign against the United States and the West that was originated in 1917 by Vladimir Lenin. When the communists took over Russia. They wanted a one-world communist government. And they realized that standing in their way was the main adversary, the U.S. of A. And so they thought, how do we fight the U.S.? Because uh, head-to-head fight's not going to work. They'll crush us. And they thought... Well, we're going to use their great what they think is their greatest strength against them. We're going to take the openness of their society, and we're going to send our agents into the United States to begin a multi-generational campaign of destabilizing the country. So there was a German communist who was a, an agent of the Soviet government's name, William Unzenberg. He was sent to America by Lenin, and his job was to start to find willing accomplices, progressives, and... Sell them on the lie and the vision of Marxism and get them to start to um, destabilize academia, uh, media, and storytelling. So if you go and you look at books from a North Carolina school in 1910, they were overtly patriotic. Books in a North Carolina school today are overtly anti-American. Movies in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, patriotic. Today, overtly anti-American. And there was a Russian KGB defector named Yuri Bezimov, who has a long video on YouTube and has written, and he talks about how America won the Cold War, but that was just a battle in the skirmish between good and evil and tyranny and freedom. And the forces of Marxism were never defeated never. They just lost their biggest sponsor in in the Soviet Union. And right now, the fifth column has made its way into many Western countries, and they are very interested in destroying everything great about us. And it's it's always the age-old elites that want to have a few people at the top controlling everybody else. And that's where we're at. We're at a space right now where either a whole bunch of us are going to see this and fight back, folks like you, And we're going to beat the forces of evil and darkness or what has happened to every democracy, which is that every democracy has had about a 200 to 250 year shelf life. America's democracy is just about 250 years old. So that's where we're at, in my opinion. I'm wondering what you think.
0: Yeah, I mean, I haven't read the book. I certainly, you know, from my perspective, I see, you know, sort of the the shift from kind of equality of opportunity to equity of outcome, it reflects, you know, much of what you're saying. I think there is a balance um, in this country. You know, one of the things that makes the country great, I think is that you actually are allowed to criticize the government. I think that's part of living in a free country. Um, I was criticizing the government when I criticized COVID policies. And ultimately that's why I was, you know, pushed out. I was told you can't criticize public, public health is a governmental agency. Why can't I criticize public health? They were wrong. I was actually right. Um, And so, you know, I think there has to be a balance. I I certainly, you know, between sort of like overtly patriotic communications and retaining our ability to criticize bad policy. That is what a free country is. And so, um, you know, I, 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 I take no issue with with people criticizing the government. In fact, I want to retain my ability to do that. What I am concerned about is what you describe, which is um, you can sort of criticize its execution and its application, but accept the premise of the vision and that we've not always succeeded in living up to it and we want to make that better it hasn't you know the promise has not always been there for everyone you know slavery women didn't have the right to vote you know all of those all of those things but the promise of america um i think is worth fighting for um you know so anyway i sort of took a turn there but I, i certainly see and observe much of much of what you're what you're talking about and sometimes i feel like i'm living in that um short story from Kurt Vonnegut called Harrison Bergeron where sort of everybody needs to be made equal by kind of dragging everybody <laughs> down. Um, wow. It's concerning.
1: Yeah. And, and, and yeah, there's no question, but you know, when voices like yours are out there, I think that's powerful. That's important. So
0: yeah. What I tell people, sorry, is cause you know, I think, look, it's not um, appealing to blow up your life in the in the way that I did and and to say that I didn't is 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 false I, I completely didn't this is you know it, it I didn't just give up a job that I loved I really gave up the opportunity to hold a job doing what I do because I am now someone that is not obedient and does not, you know, follow the party line and does not do what I'm told. I don't read from the script that comes from corporate communications and legal. And that makes me very dangerous um, and unappealing in the corporate world. I lost my city that I loved and lived in for over 30 years. I lost most of my friend group. I lost thousands of colleagues and and my job. So this is not, you know, for the faint of heart. <laughs> what I no. tell people, though, is um, the alternative is worse right? It's accepting that we live in a world of lies, which is completely destabilizing. And who knows, you know, what path that that leads us down. I think, you know, you're, you're correct in terms of the path it it, it leads us down. And that you have to show up and reject lies in your own way in your own life every day, however small you can, you can do it in tiny ways. You know, I know there are some school districts that have brought back, this sounds like a dumb little thing, but this is what I tell parents. there are some school districts that have brought back uh, virtual parent teacher conferences. It's too dangerous. There's COVID cases. Reject it. I Tell your teacher, I want to meet in person. I am not afraid. This is not a risk to me or my family. And I reject this policy. You know, you, you won't ruin your life in pushing back in that way. And if no one pushes back, they think you accept the premise. You can't accept the premise. You can't, you know, accede or concede to their framing of an issue because it's agreeing to a lie. And so I just tell people every day in your everyday life, challenge, ask questions when something doesn't make sense. And I think, I think that together, that's really, when we all do that together, that's powerful.
1: I agree with you. Um, Tonight is supposed to be uh, parent-teacher meetings at my son's school. My ex-wife is going to go because I can't go, but I totally agree with you. In fact, as you said that ago, I better call some of those teachers and say, I want to I want to book some appointments at the school to meet with you. And they, they're good about that. So I, I think I can do that. That's Thank good. you for that. Thanks for reminding me. But it's me. just
0: everything. Like sometimes you're at the grocery store and there's still like ridiculous plexiglass barriers up between you and the cashier, which like impedes communication. I mean, it's just dumb. Why do we have those? Why dumb. are we sort of no, leaving this like human separation in place? Why do we have any? I mean, there's some doctors' offices that still have dirty pen. You know, remember the clean pen, dirty pen thing during COVID. Yeah, oh like, God. like a pen was so toxically infected, you had to put it in the dirty pen yeah. bin. There's some places like oh, that still have that. Like, ask why. Point out the absurdity. You have to sort of. Yeah. You have to not accept. Um, the, the lies and untruths, otherwise they take over. And I, I just find it to be completely destabilizing because if we it accept is. small lies, we'll accept bigger ones. And that leads us down a really uh,
1: harrowing path, path in my opinion. So um, Jen, I I wanna just say this, like, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking to myself, one of the things that I, I, I've wanted to do since Wayne and I wrote our book, our, our two books is I want to do some consulting with some organizations that realize that hey, we don't want to be the next Bud Light. So, how to dewokeify your company marketing so you don't lose half your customer base and you don't lose billions in in value? And I think not to just, myself,
0: it's, it's not just so. marketing. Let me be clear; it's employee sure. practices as well, which are a huge yeah. distraction. You know, if you're spending yeah. half your time in um, anti-racism training and you're made to feel afraid to speak, because you might say something that would have been fine yesterday, but today is not, then you don't have collaboration innovation. So I, I, I agree that the marketing is the most sort of obvious example, but it's the holistic practices within the company that I think are also um, problematic and driving a lack of focus on what makes great products.
1: Well, I'll tell you something. I think this is an opportunity for for an organization to help some companies that might be willing to start to to behave with a bit of courage. And this is something that, you know, I, I do something else for a living, but this is something I'd like to do. And I'd, I'd, I'd love to offline explore this conversation with you because I think you've got a, a unique incredible ability to speak to this. And I think there's companies that would be willing to, to say, yeah, we need to do something about this. I really believe that. Yeah,
0: I think you're right. I think it is an opportunity. I've contemplated it. I think what people don't realize is, even though I just said it, you know, people think that CEOs are sort of, they're courageous. They make tough decisions. They certainly present themselves that way. My experience is that is largely untrue. Um, they do not build teams of, of rivals. They don't build teams of people that challenge them. They build sort of yes men teams. And, and right now they've elevated within a lot of these companies the function of HR as well as corporate communication, which I do not think should be elevated. Those are support functions. No. And I will tell you, in a lot of companies, those two leaders are in the CEO's ear and telling him, "You can't do this. If you don't do this, if you don't take the stand, every employee is going to quit." This is a lie, but they're that's that's what they're being told, and they're heeding the advice of people that are giving them terrible business advice. Terrible business advice. Terrible but they're too business. Cowardly. Advice. They're too cowardly, and I think not independent-minded enough to yeah. think about it differently. And if they had somebody else in their ear yeah. saying, "Do not do this. Stand up now." push back, tell employees, we're getting back to business. We're going to focus on product. We're going to focus on great unifying marketing and financial discipline, all that other stuff. We're not doing it anymore. Go be yourself outside of work. Be whoever you want to be. I'm never going to interfere with that. Come here and be ready to do work. Oh, and by the way, get your ass back in the office. (laughs) I mean, no one's telling them that. They're all afraid of the employees. But
1: but listen, I get that. And I 100% see that. And there's a lot of lack of courage. But out of the work that I've done with men, okay, and, and I'd love to chat with you further about this offline if you're open to it, there, there's a desire among men who are being cowardly to not be cowardly. John Eldridge wrote a book called Wild at Heart for Men. He's a, He's a Christian author, and he said that every man at his core, there's a part of him that wants an adventure to go on, a battle to fight, and a beauty to win. That's what all men want. And there's a way you're a marketer. There's a way to speak to that. There's always a marketing job required to get the attention. We're not going to get every CEO, but I bet you this. If we get five CEOs of companies, five out of 5,000 big American companies who are willing to do this, hey, that's a fantastic business opportunity. But once they do this and the results start to go, the rest of them are going to fall in line.
0: They're all followers. They're very nervous right now. They don't want to be Bud Lighted. They don't want to be targeted, you know, target the company and the brand, you know, the CEO of Target, Brian Collins, I think his name is, in their last earnings call, you know, spoke to the fact that this quarter's earnings was the first decline in many, many years. I think like nine years was the first quarter of declines. He attributed it to uh, the pride collection. And he spoke overtly to the fact that the last quarter of declines came many years ago when they introduced... Um, gender-neutral bathrooms. So he pinpointed that as an issue as something that his customer base, his guests were pushing back on, which to me, he didn't say it. He didn't say we're not doing this anymore, but like he kind of said it. So, and they're certainly considered a a leader amongst American companies. And, you know, I I think he's going to try to get back to appealing to all consumers with a great assortment that everybody, um, you know, that is useful in in folks' lives at a great value every day. So we'll see. You know, if he if he starts to make a difference. But yeah, at, at at the heart, they're followers. I think it's hilarious because everybody thinks they're great leaders, but they're they're followers and they're being sort of pulled around by the nose right now. And I I think the battle, or the challenge. I would I would state. I think you're correct. They all want to be heroes in their own mind. They think they are right now. They've been convinced me. that they are. I know, but they think they are. Let me. I, you have to understand what they're thinking. They 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 think they are very important self-important world leaders they they don't think their job is to lead this business they think their job is to lead a movement um and that what they are doing is more important than leading a business now they're still greedy and they still want the money so they're not going to like it when their pockets and their pocketbook and their wallet is is impacted which which it is being right now but they've yeah. been told and you know champion and featured on the covers of magazines as heroes for saving the world and fighting these important battles. And <laughs> you know, you think about it, the press is doing their bidding. They put people like Elizabeth Holmes and Sam Bankman-Fried for his effective altruism and, you know, Elizabeth Holmes was going to change the world. All these sort of like, woke. they wrapped themselves in virtue with these woke causes. Mm-hmm. They were doing terrible um, you know, illegal things beneath the surface. Both of those 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 two in particular, but others were doing deeply unethical things. Adam Newman from WeWork as an example, but everybody bought the story and they were championed as as these life-saving heroes. And what I tell people is, if you're going to go work in a company, the minute a CEO or a leadership team start talking about saving the world, run the other way. What they should be doing, they are not there to save the world. They are there to make a great product that improves people's lives. And a great profit. At at a great profit and treat employees well. I do think that's important because they will be more engaged and they will. So I, I, you know, I believe in that. Um, and, And that makes people's lives better. The people who use your product, the employees that work there, they're able to provide for their families. That used to be honorable not anymore Still. and all these CEOs they want it distant it is but it's it what's deemed honorable and gets you on the cover of you know Forbes and Fortune mm-hmm. is saying you're going to save the world while lying and cheating and stealing money from people um, the press has been duped by these people again it's another example of this sort of no daylight between um, the, you know the press and, and business they want access to these CEOs so they wrote the, write these glowing puff pieces rather than investigate them and they should be investigating them but they want to distance themselves from the you know, Wall Streeters and oil barons of the past by wrapping themselves in virtue. They think they are brave. Our CEO at Levi's always said, I take the harder right over the easier wrong. It's a lie.
1: I want to show you something. Cause this is kind of some of the work I do. Um, we talk about the purpose of business is to solve acute problems for wonderful people. And that gives them a right to make a profit. That is the yeah. only purpose of business. There is no other purpose to business. Now you as an individual may have a life purpose. You may want to see less environmental pollution. You may want to clean up the oceans. God bless you. Good for you. I'm actually for cleaning up the oceans, man. That microplastic crap and fish is not good. <laughs> not good at all. So I'm all over that. But your business's job is to do this. And I also do want to say this. I agree with you. Everything you say is correct at a macro level, but all you need is five people, five people who say, you know what, there's something to what Jen and Nikki and Wayne Allen Roode are saying, maybe we should look into this. And all you got to do is help stiffen the spine of somebody. And inside, inside our men's work, um, you know, I, I like to quote Edmund Burke, the only condition necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to stand by and do nothing number one, and secondly, um, a part of how we develop men and uh, make them more manly, because frankly we're missing manliness in the world today, and that's not good for the world, it's not good for anybody is we get them to we get them to do more of what they say. The basic thing is say x do x say x do x not say x and then change your mind when it's inconvenient in fact we say the mark of a man is he'll do what he said he was going to do especially when he's got a better offer somewhere else and it's inconvenient for him to keep his word that is a man you can count on and it's my belief that there's people that are going to be open to this message not everybody there's a lot of people that are going to go oh my god you're terrible you're racist you're sexist i get called sexist all the goddamn time (laughs) you know for for doing something for men but i don't care call me anything you want uh you know as far as i'm concerned it doesn't bother me uh i think the world needs voices like yours you've got a lot of guts you've got a lot of courage there's a lot of smaller brands that are coming out there trying to do something that's uh supporting freedom, supporting America. Uh, you know, uh, Jonathan Isaac, the NBA player. I don't know if you you know about I know, his brand, I know, yeah. Um I love what he's doing. His yeah. clothes don't really appeal to me. God bless him. But I go, man, if you very, if you ever make 100% streetwear. cotton jeans, yeah. I'll <laughs> buy. You know what I mean? Yeah,
0: it's definitely a very useful streetwear message. Look, there's room for um, uh, all sorts of ups. Start brands that, uh, you know, I think there's, there's two things I think need to happen and, and will happen. I think large brands need to come back to the center. And by center, I don't mean centrist politics, I mean product, unifying marketing, and financial discipline. Like leave all the other stuff out. Just talk about your product, make it a great, amazing product. I mean, part of the problem with Bud Light was not just the polarizing me- message but the fact that the product is utterly undifferentiated. So it was super easy for people to switch. You know, what? Nike has put polarizing messaging into the marketplace, people aren't switching. That brand continues to grow because their product is pretty great and differentiated. And at the end of the day, nobody wants to give it up. Nobody wants to give it up. Bud Light, mm-hmm. meh, right? They switched to Miller, they switched to Coors, they just switched to Miller and Coors and Modelo, which enjoyed um, increased revenue and share, did nothing. They didn't change their marketing they didn't go right they didn't they didn't do anything they just sat there and enjoyed the sort of the, the benefits so i think the larger brands are just going to kind of get back to focusing on product but i think smaller brands there are going to be very left-leaning quote-unquote progressive brands that continue to appeal to that sort of base, and that's fine that's their base it's a small brand they can do that and i think they're going to be these other sort of upstart brands that push back on that and challenge it and appeal to people who appreciate freedom or even you know more conservative values than that i think right now the problem is a lot of these parallel economy brands as they call them they have an idea but they don't have great products and at the end of the day no matter how much people have the idea if your product is crap no one's going to keep buying it so um you know we need people we need to make great product if we're going to do it this way i 100
1: percent agree with you so um when we're off here, I'd like to get an, an address and I want to ship you Wayne and I's book. I'd like to sign it for you and send it to you. But um, good product, great product is super, super important. So one of the books I included in the book, um, let me grab it, is Emerson Knives. Now, Emerson Knives has an apparel division as well. So this is the wonderful book. I'm promoting my book, although we should promote your book here today. We're going to make sure that we do that before you go. Um, Emerson Knives makes apparel as well and mostly T-shirts. And uh, Ernest Emerson, he's a knife designer. He's known for making really cool designs. But his T-shirts are like, they're awesome. They fit really great. They're made in America. Uh, He's got really cool graphic designs and messages on them. And I just go crazy and I buy all all of his T-shirts, and I think those are those are important. And what you're saying about uh, about you know products with a great message is 100 percent true. Um, have you heard of We the People Wine?
0: I haven't. No. You, I'll check you it out. You ought to check
1: them out. Um, they they've got some ads on YouTube, and what what put them on the map was they had an ad. Uh, where Ronald Reagan was narrating, I think, his farewell address. And there was pieces of it where he was talking about freedom and the people who didn't believe in the promise of America and why he still did and why it was still the shining on the hill. They put some really cool uh, music with it. And you watch that ad. I don't, I don't drink. I've never had a drop of alcohol in my life. So I want to go buy a case of wine and give it to all my friends just because of how good a job these guys did with it, you
0: know? But see, well, and I have no idea what this brand is. If the wine's not good, you might buy that case of wine and then your friends are going to drink it and be like this one. I don't know if it's good or not, but it, my point is, I think there's a lot of folks starting these businesses and brands and they're inspired and swept up and they want to provide an alternative for their friends. who don't feel welcome by, you know. Yeah the The causes that these other brands are supporting, but then they did, they need to take the time to make the product great. Otherwise, no one's going to drink crappy wine.
1: No one's going to drink at the end of night. the day. <laughs> no, it's true. You, you know what? I don't want to buy Nike, but sometimes I have to for my kids. I don't buy it for myself anymore, but I definitely buy it for my kids because yeah, that's what they want to wear. So I get I get what yeah. you're saying. So Jen, um, what? How can people kind of engage with your message? Have you got a, a second book out? Tell us what's, what is what is going on in your world. How do we support you and what you're all about?
0: Yeah, I, well, I've written two books. The first was in 2008. That was about um, gymnastics, and that was called Chalked Up. And the most recent book, which was written less than a year ago, is called Levi's Unbuttoned, and that's really about my corporate career. Um, it's not exclusively focused on you know the last two-year struggle I had at Levi's. It is about... You know, the challenges of, of coming up in the corporate world and retaining your voice and your integrity within that world. The challenges of being a woman in corporate America in the nineties and two thousands, it was not without challenge. I you know, one of the points I make is it has gotten a lot better for women. I think pretending that it hasn't is ridiculous. It's a lot better. I can yeah. tell you horror stories from the nineties about what sure. it was like. Um and you know, it's it's a memoir, but you know, ultimately it, it is about the The stance I took, and you know, kind of being I don't even want to say true to myself, being uh loyal to the truth, and not allowing um you know money and whatever other incentive to coerce me into not being loyal to the truth. And like I said, there's risk that comes with that. And I hope I, my hope is with the book, it's called Levi's Unbutton, you can get it wherever books are sold Is it inspires people to, you know, stand up and, and speak the truth and push back in their own way every day. Because I think there's a lot of people that see it. I think most people have, you know, decent common sense, but they're too afraid. Um, and, you have to not be afraid because like I said, the alternative of being ostracized, you know, the alternative, you know, is so much worse. You can handle the ostracizing. You can handle the name calling. And the fact is, If everyone who sees the nonsense stands up and says, this is nonsense, then we're the majority. And at that point, it doesn't matter what they call us anymore. So I just want those people in the middle that are too afraid to stand up and and speak truth to power because we need you. Um, Anyway, you can buy the book wherever books are sold. And then I also write a sub stack as I guess one does in the world today, (laughs) which um, is called Say Everything. But you can also just find it under my name. My last name is S-E-Y.
1: Yeah. I'm, um, I'm going to get your book myself and, um, I'm good friends with, uh, some folks at rebel news, which is the biggest alternative media outlet in Canada. Um, so if you'd like, I'd love to connect you with those folks and, and get you a hearing. They're really supporting sure. ta- Tamara Lick, uh, of the freedom convoy in a big way. Um, you should be on Value Tainment and Patrick Bet David's podcast. I think he'd love you. I think you should be on the Megyn Kelly show, the Dave Rubin show. I've been on, I've
0: been on Megyn Kelly several times, um, not on Rubin. Yeah. Megyn Kelly twice, once for the entire episode, right after I resigned, she was the first show I did and she was nice oh, wow. enough to blurb my book. So yeah, she's been a huge supporter. Um, but some of the others I have not, would would love that if you uh, well, have any. Uh,
1: I'm not connected connection. to Patrick. I don't know him well. I know Kayvon Comedy, um, who uh, is uh, occasionally on the show there, and I know, I, I I do know Patrick's Booker. I don't know him well. We tried to get our us on the show, but I guess the Bud Light moment passed, so they moved on to something else. But I think he would like yeah. to listen to you. Megan Kelly knows him well. She's had him on the show a few times. Yeah. So if you're connected to Megan, that might be the way to do it. That's one of the things I teach. One of the books I wrote is about how to go through your network and get to, to meetings and business yeah. and whatnot. It's, I love doing that. It's a lot of fun, and I I, I like yeah. coming up with strategies for it. I will do what I can in that regard, but if you've got a good relationship with Megan, she could she probably has Patrick on speed dial on her cell phone because they've been on each other's yeah. shows a few times. Um, but I'll tell you the – the Gen Say story is powerful. I am honored that you've come on the show. Thanks for taking the time to uh, share some of your ideas. And we debated a few issues. We didn't agree on everything, but we agreed on most things and on the important things, which is well. I
0: think that's an important point. I, sorry, I, I, one of the things I, I, you know, I've been welcomed by the right and conservative media and libertarian. And that's fine. And I, I share some views, and I, um, I don't share some others, and and that's fine. Um, I, I we can talk to people we disagree with, right? That's fine. Yes. We can come together on the things that we do agree on and we can decide to still be respectful on the things that we don't. And I, I think that that's what's so important. I mean, one of the things that got me in a, a heap of trouble at Levi's, which I didn't mention, which really sort of set the whole thing on fire is I appeared on, on Fox News while I was still employed there on the Ingram angle um, in the spring of 21. And that just drove people crazy. And they said, employees said, I don't disagree with anything you said. I just disagree with where you've said it. Okay. So now we deserve to be, we are undeserving of employment if we talk to people that disagree with us on some issues. I mean, she was great on COVID. She was great on the school's issue. She was the first um, national news pundit personality to actually push back on the madness, the very first one. So I don't care if I disagree with her on other stuff. Fine. So we disagree on other stuff. Why can't we talk to people we disagree with? Why can't we be friends with people we disagree with or be married to people we disagree with? Like It's just so nuts. Um, And so I'm just sort of reinforcing your point that I think that, that we have to demonstrate those behaviors, that we can, in fact, have respectful debate. We can elevate debate and dissent again in this country. We can talk to people we disagree with. And
1: learn something. I'm going to call this episode Loyal to the Truth. That's one of the phrases that you said that I really liked. I wrote it down. And um, for whatever it's worth, Jen, um, I'm I'm a fan and a supporter of what you're, you're trying to do out there. And I'd love to chat with you about getting to some of these CEOs and finding if we can find a couple that are willing to entertain the conversation because I think they need it. And I think that I,
0: do
1: need it. I think it could be a good business opportunity. I, I think we can make a couple of dollars from it. But I also think that if we get one or two corporations to do it and we have a positive result, i.e. not everybody quits. And in fact, right. you you get some really good employees coming to work here because they're like, oh, my God, you mean I can actually be myself and not worry about walking on eggshells every minute? Sign me up. Yeah. and and. And their um, their sales numbers go up. And that's their, right. That's and the key. Their, um, And their stock price goes up. All we need is two to have that experience. I think that's going to open the floodgates for everybody else. So I think you'd be doing God's work and all of that stuff. So I'd love to chat with you about it if you're open to it. But before we leave off i know thank you for staying beyond the time that we booked i really appreciate it It was just such a good conversation that i didn't want to cut it off short and i That's appreciate it. you sticking with me we end off each episode by asking you as our guest expert to give my listener what we call your top three expert action steps these are your three best pieces of advice to help people live with courage Go after their dreams and be of service to the people that they aim to serve. This includes their consumers, this includes their employees, this includes their families. What say you?
0: Yeah. Um, Good question. I think the first is listen to that voice inside of you that knows the truth. (laughs) Don't get confused by all the garbage. Um, You know, I don't need to be a doctor to know that it is not fair to have biological males compete in women's sports. I don't need to be a doctor to know that. So, you know, seek out information always. Oh, this is my second one. Always be willing to take in new information and to change your priors because you've learned something new. Um, I think that's really important to always, always stay open, but um, it's in service of, of truth, not in service of supporting experts. So the first is sort of listen to your gut, always be willing to change your priors and seek out new information. And the last one is, you know, behave online, behave at work, behave in the world as you would always in real life. You know, one of the things I kept close to my heart as I was, you know, protesting all the COVID restrictions is, I needed to be able to look myself in the mirror at the end of the day. I didn't want to get into fights and call people names and act like a, you know, an idiot. Even though I was angry at times, I, I always, you know, I, and I had the chances I was writing the book to kind of go back because social media is what got me in, in trouble. Not, not exclusively, there were also news appearances and op-eds and I look back and I have reread everything I posted and I'm proud of how I handled myself. You know, I, I've always been respectful, diplomatic, and fact-based. And I think it's really important you can get very angry. And I think we it's important not to sink um, to the level of those you're battling. Stay above the fray and always make sure you, you're proud of yourself in how you conduct yourself.
1: I like all of these expert action steps, but I really like the last one in – I'll tell you why before we wrap up. So I used to be a a top fitness coach. I worked with Olympic champions and world record holders. In fact, my better half is a three-time Guinness world record holder. She's run 12 hours on a treadmill three times and set world records. I know. I know. know, know. Everybody reacts like that. I did the first hour the first time with her, and that was it. Honey, you're on your own after that. (laughs) So – but that was me. And, um, when I got out of that field and I got into the field of being, uh, an executive coach and advisor, um, a switch flipped and over a 12 year period, I gained 50 pounds. So I went from being one of the fittest men on the planet to being a fat man. And, uh, anyways, this year I made a decision that I was not, Okay with that anymore. And I yeah. stopped lying to myself and saying, You can change this anytime because you know what to do. I said, You were a trainer. You're not one anymore. Hire somebody. So I hired a guy and I made a decision to listen to this fellow's coaching. I dropped 58 pounds. So I'm back to being really wow, fit. I'm congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It's great. What that Love opened that. up for me though, as I thought, this is the biggest result I've attained easily in a decade for anything, right? Outside of, you know, raising two awesome sons that aren't, uh, that are honorable men and good, strong, tough young men too. So I'm proud of that too. But I thought to myself, well, what changed here is I got out of the bad habit of eating bad food and too much of it. And I got into the habit of eating the right food and just enough of it. And I thought, well, what do I need to do differently in my life? Well, what I needed to do differently in my life was realize that there's a part of me that was prone to emotional outbursts. And I would say, oh, I'm Persian. It's what we do. We're hot-blooded. But that's an adolescence point of view. It's not the it point of view of a nuanced adult, a, a grown-ass man. Yeah. Uh, that's a technical yeah. term, a grown-ass man, right? So, <laughs> I think
0: that's a good insight,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. So when you sh- and this insight has just been crystallizing in the last few days, and I've been really like focusing on it. And, and when you just said this, is you know, respect the truth, but do it in a respectful, diplomatic, and fact based way. I'm just thank you for that message. It was very powerful for that to be confirmed to me by you, by God through you today. So, thank you.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think generally, look, I think women try to be bridge builders. I think this is also why it's harder for women often to kind of stand up and they, they, they're, they you know, group creatures by nature. We're the ones ostracized from the community when we when we stood up for our kids during COVID. Um and so maybe it's you know and one of the ways in corporate america i was trained like i said i came up in the 90s and 2000s like it was not okay for women to go in and be like tough right? like you had to whatever you had to couch your words you had to make them think it was his idea like all this stuff you know you couldn't come in and say this is what we're doing you had to kind of you know make your boss feel like it was his idea sure. i'll just leave it at that that was like but, my mom you know, with my
1: dad when we were growing up yeah, exactly
0: <laughs> But i I mean, I think there's there's some merit here. You know, children can't control their emotions that's That's a child's way of responding. We learn up We, we learn as we grow up and mature that that is not the most effective way to have our ideas heard. Um, and believe me, I was very angry at times in the last three years, but I don't think at least not publicly, I ever sort of publicly lost my temper with anyone. And I was, I'm very proud of how I conducted myself. And I think ultimately it allows you to be heard a bit more. It might take longer, um, but I think it can help bring people along. Um, And it's just, you know, outside of any of that, that's the person I am. And that's how I want to conduct myself in public. And I don't think it, it benefits anyone you know to call people names and just say stupid shit
1: <laughs> yeah god bless your heart for that um jen say an honor to have you on the show love to have you back we're going to call the episode loyal to the truth and um folks jen say she's the real deal she's written two books chopped up which is a memoir of her time in the gymnastics uh sport. And Levi's Unbuttoned, which is a story of her uh, rise and her unceremonious exit from an iconic company. Uh, I can tell you this. I've not read either one, but I'm planning on reading both. If she writes as well as she speaks, they're going to be darn good reads. I recommend that you buy them, listener. This is going to be really, really good for you. And make sure that you uh, check out her sub stack, which is at Say Everything. And stay tuned for more of Jense because I'm sure there's going to be more that she's going to bring out to the world. She is absolutely awesome, Jense. An honor to have you here. Thanks, Thank thanks. you for joining us today.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. You bet. And that
1: wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. Find out more about today's incredible guest, the one and only Jense. Go to thethoughtleaderrevolution.com, check out the show notes, or wherever you happen to listen to this episode, be it iTunes. Spotify, Google Play, Audible, or what have you. Until next time, goodbye.
0: This episode has been brought to you by ecircleacademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice.